I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. There's uh, some things that the Lord has been stirring me up about here over the last couple of weeks that um, have finally hit the boiling point for me. And um, so I'm going to teach on some things. I I really don't have an outline or a plan for a series, but I know I'm going to wind up teaching for a while on it. So I might as well just bite the bullet and go ahead and say we're going to start a series. On the anointing of God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 10 is uh, God speaking through Isaiah to the children of Israel about something that they're experiencing at that point in time, at their present time, our past, but their present, where uh, the nation of Assyria was concerned. Assyria has uh, oppressed Israel for a long time and done some horrible things to them. And as a matter of fact, God made uh, some specific uh, statements of judgment, specific judgment and, and special judgment against Assyria because some of the ways that they had treated the people of God. And, um, and as such, Isaiah is uh, speaking about a lot of things regarding what God will do for them at that point in time uh, to free Israel from Assyrian bondage. But I want you to, I want to pull out verse 27 because it not only has a natural application or a specific uh, timely application to them, but it has an application for us as well. It said, and it shall come to pass in that day that his burden, now his burden is a reference specifically to Assyria, but you see for yourself what else it's talking about, that his burden shall be taken from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Now, Folks, as I said, Assyria is a is a, a literal nation. There's a there's a king of Assyria. The Assyrian armies are are operating against uh, Israel, and uh, and God obviously wants His people to be free. But just as the Old Testament, the Bible says, are types and shadows for us, everything that happened in the Old Testament is an example of something for us. Well, how can the Assyrians? oppressing Israel, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, be an example for us unless the Assyrians represent the same kind of oppression that we have in life or that comes against us in life through the work of the devil. See, I guess the point I'm really trying to make is, and maybe this is a better way to say it, God wants you to be free today just as much as he wanted Israel to be free in Isaiah chapter 10. Right? Anybody doubt that? No, actually, God wants us to be even more free because we can be free spirit, soul, and body. That wasn't available to them because Jesus had not yet come to the earth and had not yet made a sacrifice of his life on the cross. But clearly, from verse 27, you can see that God wanted Israel to be free. And not only that, but he tells them, number one, they would be free, and then tells them how the freedom would come. Well, if these are types and shadows of the process or the manner in which freedom would come to them in Isaiah 10, it's an example to us of how freedom will come to us in our spiritual walk today. Let's read it again. And it shall come to pass that in that day, that day for us is the day of Jesus' resurrection, that his burden, I believe that's not only Assyria but also representative of the, de- of the devil, that his burden shall be taken from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The Bible says that Jesus is identified as the Christ, the Messiah. Those words mean the anointed one. The anointed one. Well, we know the power of sin and death was broken over mankind because of the work of the anointed one. Not only that, but we see that Jesus did works here on the earth in his earthly ministry to set people free from the power of the devil, 
He delivered them from the power of the devil. He set them free from sickness and disease. Well, those were works of the devil because he was the anointed one. And notice how it says that the yoke shall be destroyed. I would submit to you, and I don't think this, um, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not expecting much argument on this case. But those that have been born again, those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, as far as the Bible is concerned, they've been set free from sin and death. Those people know that heaven is their home, right? Yet we still see things that the Bible identifies as works of the devil, like sickness, like poverty and lack, and any, any number of other things that we could name. We still see those works of the devil keeping people in bondage even after they've been born again, right? Well, how was sin and death broken over their lives? Through the work of the anointing, the anointed one. The yoke was destroyed because of the anointing. It was the, the work of the anointed one. Well, then how is sickness and lack and poverty and any of the other number of things that we could identify as Satan's work that holds people in bondage, how is that going to be destroyed in our lives today? And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Now, let me ask you a question. What does anointing mean? You'll hear it talked about a lot in certain circles. And um, and it seems to me that when I hear some people talking about it, they don't have a clue what it means. What does the word anointing mean? You look it up in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew concordance, you'll find out it just simply means to rub something on something else. It means to rub on. Well, okay. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Well, is that like Vic's vapor rub? Is that what sets you free from sickness and, and poverty? Is that what sets you free from the power of the devil? Well, it can't mean that. What does it mean? One of the first examples we see of an anointing is the Old Testament when God was speaking to Moses. He gave him the law. He gave him the pattern for the tabernacle to be built, tabernacle of the wilderness to be built. And he established Aaron as the high priest. And one of the first things that he said was after you build the elements of the tabernacle, after you build the uh, uh provide or produce the garments that uh, the high priest is supposed to wear, one of the first things you do is anoint the high priest for the office that he stands in and anoint the elements of the tabernacle to separate them unto God. What did they do? They took a a cruise of oil. That's just a a way of saying a bottle or, or whatever container, a jar, jug, ceramic jug, whatever it was, pottery jug, that was full of oil, and they just poured it on Aaron. He knelt down before Moses, and Moses just poured that thing, started on the top of his head. The Bible identifies how it just oozed over his whole body, covered him from head to toe. Well, now, that's important because the high priest is going to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. And God is going to accept those sacrifices made by the high priest to cover the sins of Israel, to forgive or wipe away the sins of Israel for one year at a time. Year after year after year after year, one, one time each year. This sacrifice is going to be made along with other sacrifices, many other sacrifices made throughout the year. Well, can I ask you a question? What does oil being poured on somebody's head have anything to do with separating them to represent the people before God and make him sanctified or holy or clean or anything else? Not only that, but after Aaron was, uh, was the tribe of Levi and the Levites, one person was anointed high priest for a specified period of time. This was for several years. At a time, and then another high priest, another one of the priests would rotate into the high priest slot. So every several years, there's going to be this anointing taking place upon the high priest to stand in his office. But the ones that are being anointed for the high priest have already been anointed as lesser priests. 
Well, some of these people were reprobates. Some of the sons of the high priests, Eli's sons, for example, would steal the, the, uh, the sacrifices of the people when they brought them to the tabernacle to, the, to worship God, to separate them uh, or to sanctify, to sacrifice them before God. I'll get it right in a minute. I'm not in a hurry, so I'll just keep using words until I get the right one. And so they'd take these sacrifices. These guys would take the sacrifices and steal them for themselves. And they would require some of the women to have sex with them as part of their offering unto God. And the people complained to Eli, the high priest, about it. They said, you look, your sons are doing these terrible things. Yet they were anointed and separated unto God. Well, it's pretty obvious to me then just pouring oil on something doesn't make somebody right. Certainly didn't in their case. So what's the deal with the anointing? If the anointing means to rub on, and again, the example that we have, the earliest example we have is pouring oil, olive oil is what they use, but it wouldn't matter. You could use motor oil. It wouldn't matter. It's oil. There's nothing special about olive oil any more than any other kind of oil. There's no oil that's going to separate somebody unto God. So it has to represent something else. It has to be an Old Testament representation of something that God recognizes as worthy. Wouldn't you agree? Well, what is that? What is that that is poured out upon mankind or was intended to be poured out on mankind or was promised to be poured out on mankind that would separate him unto God? There's only one thing, and that's the Holy Ghost. So the anointing is a type of the Holy Ghost then. Has to be. So when oil was poured either on the high priest or on the elements of the tabernacle, later the elements of the temple, and on the high priest, however how often they would replace one, Sometimes it was more often than others. Some of the high priests step into the wrong place without preparing themselves, and they died in the presence of God. So they'd drag them out of there by the rope tied around their foot, and another high priest would step in and take their place. I'm not sure I'd want to be on deck in that situation. But nevertheless, that's what happened. And so it wasn't a, a, a every two or every four year type of thing. It depended on the actions of the high priest. But each time, this oil is poured upon them. But the oil doesn't make them right. The high priest in Jesus' day certainly wasn't operating according to what he saw Jesus doing and recognizing it as the work of God in the earth. Now, he did operate on behalf of the people by examining Jesus and providing him as a sacrifice, declaring that he was worthy to be sacrificed, and that's the work of the high priest every year on the Day of Atonement. So even in that, as as an evildoer, if you will, as somebody that's been separated and sanctified before God, but obviously not operating in the people's best interest before God, he's still anointed. So this word anointed means to rub on, but the rubbing on has to do with the Holy Ghost. It's representative of the Holy Ghost, not just oil. Now with that in mind, turn with me over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Here's a verse of scripture you're going to be familiar with. This is Peter preaching at Cornelius' house. And you remember he went there in a supernatural way. He fell into a trance and had a vision. And the result of that vision was an angel, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, Go, there's three men downstairs looking for you. Go with them and quit asking questions. Just do it. You know, sometimes you just have to just do it. So many times people get to the place where, well, Pastor Mike, answer all my questions and then I'll believe God's, Jesus is my healer. Sometimes they need to just shut up and do it. 
Acts chapter 10, when Peter was at Cornelius' house preaching about Jesus, notice what he said. He said in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Jesus wasn't anointed with oil. Jesus wasn't separated unto God with the oil of the Old Testament. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power. Who went about doing good and healing. So healing must be good. Healing must be identified. or Otherwise, why would the Bible identify healing as part of the good that Jesus did? It didn't say Jesus went about doing good sometimes. But then he healed too. No, he went about doing good and healing. All that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Now, when was Jesus anointed with the Holy Ghost and power? Well, the Bible tells us that took place when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Everybody that was there bear record that there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Heavens opened and something came down. The Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove. Now, you know, there's all kinds of um, pictorial references and, and, and ideas and images that have come from that, that the Holy Ghost is like a dove. Well, actually, what the Bible is saying is the Holy Ghost has descended upon Jesus from heaven like a bird would fly down from the sky and land on something. That's all that means. It doesn't mean the Holy Ghost looked like a dove. It doesn't mean it looked like a bird. It doesn't mean anything except everybody saw something come down from heaven and land on Jesus and stay there. That's all it means. Well, what was that? Well, it was the Holy Ghost. What did it look like? I guess the best description is what they get, the people that were there and bore witness of it gave us. It flew down from heaven and landed on him and stayed. The important thing is it stayed upon him. And it was at that point in time that Jesus' earthly ministry began. Now, it'd be real easy for us to say once the Holy Ghost came on Jesus, everything worked out just perfect. But one of the first things that happened, or the first thing that did happen after Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River is that he went into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. And he spent 40 days in preparation for this ministry that is to come, that hasn't yet started. He's anointed. He's anointed with both the Holy Ghost and with power. But he goes into the wilderness. Why don't you turn back with me to uh, Luke chapter 4. Might be a good idea for us to reference these things rather than just speak of them. Luke chapter 4 tells us about Jesus after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Notice in verse 1, it says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, Returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, the things that happened immediately before this is he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Everybody saw it. Everybody heard the voice. Everybody witnessed what took place. Now, it's interesting because at the baptism of uh, Jesus in uh, the Jordan River, all three manifestations of God are in, in operation. They're present at one time. God speaks from heaven. The Holy Ghost comes down. And Jesus, the Son of God, is being baptized. So, folks, the Trinity, whatever you think about the Trinity, and I granted it's there are some parts of it that are hard to understand, but whatever you think about the Trinity, it's not three names for one God. That's one thing it's not. They're separate and distinct personalities with separate and distinct purposes. See, Islam says 
that Jesus can't be the son of God because God would have to have a wife. Well, that shows how smart Muhammad was. Well, if that's not how it works, Pastor Mike, how does it work? It works exactly the way the Bible says. Well, how is that possible? I have no idea. I don't know what makes God the Father and Jesus the Son. And what's the Holy Ghost? The cousin? Folks, there's a lot of things I can't answer. I can make some real good jokes about, but (laughs) I don't have any answers for them. But I know what the Bible says is true. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So immediately, after Jesus is anointed with the Holy Ghost in power, what does the Holy Ghost do? He's the anointing. He's that which was represented in the Old Testament by the oil being poured on the high priest and others, other things and other people. What does he do? Verse 1 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost. That's an interesting term. Now that means it's something a little different than it means today. Because being full of the Holy Ghost means you have the evidence of speaking with other tongues. Well, did Jesus speak with other tongues? No, because the Bible says that speaking with other tongues is separate and distinctive of the present day dispensation. The church age. Speaking with tongues is, is, uh, is only for the church age. Jesus did not live in the church age. So Jesus is full of the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? Well, John said that he had the spirit without measure. said, God gave Jesus the spirit without measure. That implies that you have a measure and I have a measure, but none of us have the spirit without measure. Jesus, however, had it all. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus stood in all five-fold ministry offices. He's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. So he has to be an apostle. Apostle means sent one. He's a prophet. He called himself a prophet in Nazareth. He said, no prophet is without honor, save or except in his own country. So he called himself a prophet. He's an evangelist. Because he said he was anointed to preach the gospel. That's the evangelist's work, to preach the gospel. He was a teacher because the Bible says more about Jesus' teaching ministry than any other thing. He'd go into the synagogues and teach. So he had to stand in the office of a teacher too. Finally, he was a pastor or he operated in the office of the pastor because the word pastor is the same word shepherd in the New Testament. And Jesus said that he was the good shepherd. So Jesus stood in all five ministry offices. Therefore, he had an anointing. For each one of those five ministry offices. I believe that's what it means where it says he had the spirit without measure. Because you can't find anybody that stands in all five offices today. That never has happened since Jesus and never will happen. Which means I have a part, you have a part, others have another part. But here's Jesus full of the Holy Ghost. And Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness. I don't know about you, but that's not exactly the first place I want the Holy Ghost to lead me. I'm looking for the Holy Ghost to lead me out of the wilderness. See, folks, there's this there's this erroneous idea that everything about God is always leading you up and up and up and up and up. Increase after increase after increase after increase. And that's not always the way it works. There are times where you prepare yourself for whatever God has next by finding out who he is in the wilderness. Because if all you ever know is who God is when things are going good, what are you ever going to do when trouble comes? And the Bible says trouble will come. 
It seems to be important for Jesus to find out what it's like to be alone before he gets in front of the people because his first year of ministry, everybody loves the guy. His second year of ministry, everybody's against him. Third year of ministry is focused solely on the cross. I feel sorry for these guys that everybody starts off loving them. I've never had that problem. And there's some real interesting things, important things you can learn about God because they don't. Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. For what purpose? So he could get along with God. Notice it says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted 40 days of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Now that does not mean God led him out into the wilderness where he to be tempted of the devil. The purpose of going into the wilderness was not the devil. The purpose of going into the wilderness was Jesus separating himself before God. Now, the Bible says that Jesus was out there for 40 days fasting. Why in the world did Jesus fast for 40 days? Because he's preparing himself for the ministry that he knows is coming and really has already begun. It's easy for us to say his ministry began when the miracles took place, but actually his ministry began when John baptized him in the Jordan River. The wilderness was part of Jesus' ministry, in my opinion. And just like you, just like me, Jesus was tempted of the devil when he ever separated himself to God. You ever notice how that works? You commit yourself and say, I'm going to read my Bible an hour a day. You'll find everything in the world. You'll be reminded of everything in the world to do except read your Bible. You can commit yourself, I'm going to pray for an hour every morning when I get up. Well, if your alarm clock ever does work for you to get up, As soon as you start praying, you'll think of everything else you need to do except pray. Folks, that's not coincidental. It's the way the devil works against us. He tries to separate us. He tries to to distract us from whatever commitment we make to God. That's why there is a fight of faith. Because every time you commit yourself to take hold of God's word and act on God's word, the devil is going to try to fight you to make you turn loose of your commitment. Because if he can get you to turn loose of your commitment of faith or turn loose of God's word, then he's got you. If he can get Jesus to turn loose of this fast, which is for the purpose of separating himself before God, he can weaken him in his ministry down the road. So it tells us about the devil's Temptation, we won't read that. We'll skip down to verse 13. It says, and when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. The reason he departed from Jesus is because Jesus answered each of the temptations, each of the three different temptations with the word. Jesus was equipped with the word to defeat the devil's works against him before the devil ever attacked. Folks, that's the best time to prepare yourself with the word before the attack comes. And notice in verse 14, verse 14 is a real interesting verse. And it says, following the 40 days in the wilderness, following the temptation of the devil, it says, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit. I wonder where that came from. Or is that something, is that just talking about the same thing where it says that uh, Jesus was anointed with power and with the Holy Ghost? Did that happen? Is that power of the Holy Spirit available and ready to use in the same measure when John baptized him in the Jordan River or immediately following as it was 40 days later after the temptation in the wilderness? If so, what's the purpose for separating himself unto God? If Jesus felt it important enough to follow the leading of the Holy Ghost, and that's an important key, the Holy Ghost led him into the wilderness. 
Well, why would the Holy Ghost lead him out there if it didn't produce something good? If it didn't produce something worthwhile for his ministry. Jesus said of the Holy Ghost that he'll guide you into all reality. He'll guide you into things that are true. He'll guide you into victory. If Jesus being led into the wilderness didn't have something to do with the victory that God had intended for him regarding his earthly ministry here on the earth, what's the point? Something to think about, huh? No, I believe it had a very significant part to play in the success of his ministry. And I believe verse 14 is telling us that. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. He returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. I believe with all my heart that in those 40 days in the wilderness when Jesus was fasting, and the purpose for fasting isn't doesn't have anything to do with food, it has to do with focusing on God instead of earthly things. Some people say they're fasting and don't spend the time that they would spend preparing meals or eating meals, praying and fellowshipping with God. Folks, that's a diet. Fasting is for the purpose of putting spiritual things first. Which means you're using the other time, the thing that, the time that you normally spend for natural things, on spiritual things and fellowshipping with God. That's what Jesus is doing in the wilderness. And it produced a result. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. See, one of the first things that happened is Jesus teaching. What in the world is he teaching? And how is it that people are listening to him when he comes out of nowhere and nobody knows of him? The only people that know anything about him is they heard, the ones that heard the voice when John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River. But how many people would that be? Jesus didn't follow John around. How many people would that be? And how widespread would that have been? John the Baptist's disciples start telling people, oh, we saw him. There was a voice from heaven and heavens opened and, and all that. Well, what are normal people going to think about that? People that were there, people that believe in the things of God, people that believe in John's preaching, they might say, wow, that's great news. How many of those are there going to be? You know, it's an interesting thing. And I don't mean step on anybody's toes. I'm going to keep my eyes down so nobody thinks I'm talking about them. <laughs> but people try to impress me with stories. It's It's fascinating. Because people try to impress me with stories, and they always come out with the, uh, the come up with the most outlandish things to tell me a story about. I don't trust everybody's story. I, I don't know what people think I'm going to do. Oh, let me tell you this story I heard. Seriously, would you trust anything else I said if I started talking about stories that never happened? But people, nobody, what impresses me is when somebody comes up and says, Pastor Mike, I took the word of God that you were preaching on and God changed things and boy, look at what happened. That impresses me. Just simple. Put the word to work. The word works. God's good. Praise the Lord. But these outlandish stories, I don't get it. I don't get what people do. Well, I understand it. But it doesn't have the desired effect. I don't think it would have had the desired effect in Jesus' day either. I don't believe that, with, that if it was just the story alone of Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan River, that it would have carried much weight for very long. It might have gathered a little bit of interest to begin with, but not much. But when he came back from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, now things start happening where Jesus makes a name for himself, or maybe a better way to say that is God makes a name for him. 
Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. Seems like the power is connected with the fame. Now, where'd the power come from? Is the power Jesus's? Is the power because Jesus is the Son of God? No, the power is the anointing of the Holy Ghost. So who's providing the impetus for the fame of Jesus to grow? The Holy Ghost. It's the anointing that breaks the yoke. And whatever happened, whatever powerful things happened to cause people to, to, uh, to know of Jesus and his fame to begin to grow, have to be attributed back to the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost is the one that anointed him with the power. Amen. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue. Jesus was in the habit of going to church. A lot of Christians aren't. A lot of Christians try to use, make up spiritual excuses for it. But Jesus' habit was to go to church. There's no need me telling you this. You're Sunday morning or Sunday night crowd. <laughs> You're the ones that make the rapture. And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written. What's the first thing that we have record of Jesus teaching? He taught from Isaiah 61, what we know of as Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. In other words, the first thing Jesus taught was what Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah, about the Christ, about the anointed one and the anointing that he has. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Would it have been appropriate for Jesus to say, well, you know, they say I'm the son of God, but I'm really not. No, he really was the son of God. Would it have been appropriate for Jesus to say, well, you know, some people say God sent me, but I don't like to make a big deal about that, so I just don't want to say that. Well, that'd be a lie, because God did send him. In the same way, would it have been appropriate for Jesus to say, yeah, I am the Son of God and God sent me, but let's just forget about that anointing stuff. We don't want anybody to have the wrong idea about me. No, that'd been a lie, too. In other words, for Jesus to rightly represent who he was, And who sent him, he had to rightly represent the fact that he was anointed. It's not him bragging. It's not him being egotistical. He's stating the fact, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Why? Because he's the anointed one. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Well, what are you anointed to do, Jesus? He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's King James English for saying this scripture, which speaks of the Messiah, is talking about me. I'm the anointed one that this is speaking of. That's what Jesus is saying. And everybody knows it because they want to throw him off the brow of the cliff. They reject him in Nazareth. They say, yeah, we've heard you've done miracles and miraculous things in Capernaum. Uh, We'd like to see you do those here. 
Jesus recognizes that. He references that. He says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that you want to see the same things that I did in Capernaum. But I can't do them here because you don't believe. Mark chapter 6 says that they did not believe. Matter of fact, let me, uh, let me turn over here real quick and I'll read it to you. Luke 4 t- gives us the example or the uh, details of what he preached. It says in Mark chapter 6 and verse 5, and it says, and he could there in Nazareth in his own hometown, he says he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. Now, some people have the idea that Jesus, because he was the son of God, could do anything, anytime, any way he wanted to, but the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says Jesus could not do any mighty work. That means he couldn't get any signs or wonders or miracles. He didn't have any blind eyes opened in Nazareth. He didn't have any cripples walk in Nazareth. He didn't have any miracles or miraculous things or big things happen in Nazareth. Why? And he could there do no mighty work. The only thing he did and was able to do is save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks. That means folks with minor ailments, people that didn't have too much wrong with them. Nothing big, but a couple of small things. And he healed them, those that didn't have too much wrong with them. Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. So we see the anointing, even the anointing of God, the anointing that was without measure on Jesus has limits. It has to have faith mixed with it in order to operate, in order to succeed. So it's not all just on God's end then, is it? It's not all just about the power of the Holy Ghost. The power of the Holy Ghost has to be mixed with faith in those who need the power or want to receive the power in order for that power to operate. At least that's the way it was in Jesus' ministry. Now, you may have a greater anointing than Jesus, so it doesn't work that way with you. But that's the way it worked with Jesus. To hear some people preach, you have to wonder. But that's the way it worked with Jesus. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Verse 6, the last part of verse 6 is, and he went around about the villages teaching. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us when Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, the first place he went was not Nazareth. He's already been to Capernaum, and he's done signs and wonders and miracles in Capernaum. And that may have a lot to do with being around Capernaum or in the city itself, may have had a lot to do with the fame of of Jesus spreading around about through the region. But by the time he gets to Nazareth, everybody has heard about him, but he can't do anything in that town because they refuse to believe. Their reason for refusing to believe is because that's the city that Jesus grew up in, and they thought they knew him as a man, a boy first, and now he's a man. And their thinking that they knew him after the flesh kept them from believing in him as the son of God or the anointed one. Their loss. Didn't have to be that way. Their choice. And they missed out on things that God really wanted to do. Jesus really wanted to do miracles in Nazareth just like he did miracles in Capernaum. That's why when he got to Nazareth, he preached probably the same thing he preached in Capernaum and other places that he went, at least the first time he went there, by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because I'm anointed to do these things. And if you'll believe, I'll be able to do these things. But they wouldn't. So what does Jesus do? Jesus identifies, because this is me, that these scriptures in Isaiah 61 is talking about. I'm anointed by the Holy Spirit. Because these scriptures are referring to me, I am, number one, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Secondly, I really do have an anointing from God to do special miracles. And to say otherwise would have been him denying himself. Why didn't Jesus just kind of 
ease into town. I mean, you know, God doesn't like to make a big show about things, and God doesn't like you to brag on stuff. So why didn't Jesus just slip in through the back alleys and, and see if anybody came to him? Well, that's not the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to tell of the goodness of God. What did Jesus do? Jesus went around about their cities and villages preaching the kingdom of God. Telling about God's good, God's merciful, God wants you to have blessings in your life. God only wants good things for you. God wants you to exercise authority and quit letting the devil put you in bondage. Those are the things that the Bible tells us Jesus did in his earthly ministry. He proclaimed the truth. And a part of the proclamation of truth was to say... I'm anointed by the Holy Ghost. Now, why was he anointed? The Bible says Jesus, in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. Jesus could have come to the earth as God himself without being born of a virgin, without being born in a manger. He could have come to the earth as God himself and really shown off. He could have, couldn't he? The problem was that wouldn't bring redemption. He could have made a big show. But it wouldn't have brought redemption for mankind. And his purpose was to bring redemption for mankind, right? Therefore, Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory, and he came to the earth and was made as a man, as a human. In other words, Jesus did not have any more human or natural ability to heal the sick than you or I do. That's why Jesus didn't do healing miracles until after the Holy Ghost came upon him when John baptized him in the Jordan River. The anointing is everything as far as the reason Jesus has the ability to heal the sick. Apart from that ability to heal the sick given to us by the anointing of the Holy Ghost, Jesus couldn't heal anybody any more than you or I can. And he said so. He said, the works that I do, I do of my Father. I'm not doing them of myself. They don't come from me. They come from my Father. Well, how did they come from the Father? Because God sent the Holy Ghost to anoint Jesus. Furthermore, he said, the words that I speak to you, those aren't my words. I'm speaking the things that God wants me to say. How did God get that information to him? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus even said, the works that I do, they're not coming from me. I only do what I see my father do. How did he see his father do them? The same way we do, and that's through the word. Folks, the anointing was everything on Jesus. The anointing was everything on Jesus. And the reason Jesus was anointed is so that he could be equipped to stand in the office that God had for him. Now, Jesus stood in an office that's different than anybody else would. He stood in the office as our substitute. And as I said, he stood in all five of the ministry offices. So he had a special anointing, an anointing that none of the rest of us will ever approach. But the point is still the same, and that is Jesus, with the greater measure of anointing, had that anointing so that he could fulfill God's plan and stand in the office that he has for him. You and I, in lesser measure, have an anointing from God so that we can fulfill whatever his plan is for us. Turn with me over to James chapter 5. Is this making any sense? Folks, I know I'm getting something out of it, but I'm I'm not always sure that it translates to you. Sometimes I feel like I'm just up here talking to myself and you're sitting there nodding at me wondering, what time is it? (laughs) But trust me, I am talking to myself. I'm saying some things I know and other things afterwards I'll think, wow, where did that come from? 
Of course, I know the answer. That's a rhetorical question. I know where that came from because if it didn't come from me and it's in line with the word, it had to come from the Holy Ghost. And there are things the Holy Ghost is showing me about the anointing that, uh, well, I, I uh, well, okay, let me just say it. I know this stuff. I've known this stuff for a long time. Nobody taught on the anointing more or better than Brother Hagin. I know stuff about the anointing inside and outside. And I'm seeing stuff on the anointing that makes me wonder where in the world have I been. The Bible says a man that thinks he knows something doesn't know anything yet like he ought to know it. So we never get to the end of the road on anything. There's always more to learn, always more to grow. And man, am I ever learning. And I think, I think the timing is important on this too. Notice it says, James says, in James chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Is any sick among you? Is any sick among you? That's a strange question. You certainly wouldn't ask that question in church today. The implication is there shouldn't be. The implication is there shouldn't be any sick in the church. The church should be free from sickness and disease. That's the implication. You said that nowadays you'd say now the majority of you in the church that are sick, here's what you do. But he didn't say that. He said, is any sick among you? Let them, the sick, call for the elders of the church. And let them, the elders, pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, who are the elders? Denominations fight wars over elders. Elders, deacons, church structure, church government, and all this other kind of stuff. I've always thought that's kind of humorous, really. Because some people say, well, these are deacons and these are elders and these are... uh, It's the ones that God puts in charge of the church. Paul said that he built not on any other man's foundation, but as a wise master builder, he built the church in in accordance with God's plan and purpose. When Paul was leaving town, what did he do? He chose elders to be in charge of the church. So elders represent the pastoral staff, whether it's just the pastor himself or those that are also on staff, hopefully called and anointed of God for the work that they're doing to help do the work of pastoring the church. That's who the elders are. I don't care what titles you give them. They can be youth ministers. They can be assistant pastors. They can be anything you want to call them. It doesn't matter what their title is. That's who makes up what the Bible identifies as the elders, those that are doing the pastoral work. At the very least, the elders include the pastor. So the Bible's telling us something about the office of the pastor. It's saying the office of the pastor has a direct correlation to people in the church being well. Now, if God expects, and and we have to assume, I'm convinced, but for discussion's sake, we have to assume that this is inspired by the Holy Ghost for James to write this, right? So here's the Holy Ghost giving instruction on what the sick are to do in the church and what the elders are to do in the church, the pastors are to do in the church regarding the sick. So here's the Holy Ghost identifying God's requirement Is that a good word to use? God's expectation of the pastor regarding the sick in the local church. 
And what does God expect of the pastor regarding the sick in the local church? He expects them to pray for them, anoint them with oil, and the sick to be healed. Now, I'm glad the last part's not the pastor's responsibility. It's not my responsibility for somebody to be healed. My responsibility is to pray for them and anoint them with oil, according to what the Holy Ghost is saying. Why? Let me ask you, let me ask it this way. Let me approach it this way. Is it right or fair under any measure whatsoever for God to expect me to have a hand in the healing of the sick in this local church without an anointing to heal the sick? I could challenge God's justice if he's requiring something of me that I'm not equipped to do. Couldn't I? Jesus had the Holy Ghost without measure because he stood in five of the ministry offices, all five of the ministry offices. I don't stand in all five. But one, no matter whatever else you think, I certainly stand in the office of the pastor. And this is his expectation of the pastor's office. So if God has not equipped me to heal the sick in my church, then how could he expect or demand which I think both are interchangeable terms, in this case at least, how could he demand of me that I have a hand in the healing of the sick in my church? The Bible says the gifts in Romans eleven twenty nine says the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God doesn't call you if he doesn't gift you for what he called you. When he calls you, he gives you the gifts that are, pro, that are approximate or appropriate for the calling. Well, if nothing else, if nothing else, we can see from James chapter 5 that healing the sick has to be a part of the pastor's office. Or at least it's supposed to be. Now, it may not work that way in practice in a lot of churches nowadays. But you've got a lot of churches that don't even believe healing is for us today. But again, if the Holy Ghost inspired these words to be written, then that means... That God had to equip us to get that work done. I made uh, made this statement this morning. If you were with us, uh, you'll have to listen to it again. And uh, the way the Lord's been dealing with me, you may hear this a lot. And I make no apologies for that. But over the last several months, I've really been praying about people that were lame and palsied in our church. We've got an, an inordinate number of people for the size of our church. We've got an inordinate number of people that are either... In wheelchairs or people that have the effects of some kind of palsy, like cerebral palsy or something like that in our church. Real high percentage for the number of people that we have. Extremely high percentage. We've got more people in that condition than we've got that have been diagnosed with cancer. And you look nationwide, cancer's eating churches up. Why? Why is that? Now, forgive me, folks, for, for talking. I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling how God's dealing with me about things. I'm not trying to draw attention to anybody, not even myself. But I caught myself praying in the Holy Ghost, and I heard words coming out of my mouth, English words coming out of my mouth regarding the healing of the lame and palsied in our church. 
And when I did that, when I heard myself say those things, and I wasn't thinking about it, so it wasn't like I'm praying it out of my mind. When I heard myself say those things, it stopped and it made me think. And that was the time that it really dawned on me, look at how many people we've got that are in wheelchairs. Look how many people we've got that are, that are afflicted with the, the results of cerebral palsy or something like that. I never had really noticed it before. I mean, it never had really occurred to me. And I thought, wow, for the size of our church, that's a huge number. And those are just the ones I know about. There may be others that, that have something or have some effect of palsy or something that's not as noticeable that I'm not aware of. And so I really started thinking about that. I really started talking to the Lord about that. Well, the Lord dealt with me about uh, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. That's an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And he shall make bright clouds. That's a display of his power and his presence. And shall give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Well, showers of rain is an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. So I think, I'm starting to think now. I do that some. I started to think, okay, Lord, look at all the people that we've got that are in this condition. I know you don't want them that way. And I believe that you brought them here because you're drawing them by the Holy Ghost. Well, wouldn't it be a cruel trick for God to draw people like that or in those conditions to our church and not have something for them? Why wouldn't he want to draw them somewhere where they could get some help? Makes sense. And folks, if I'm not it, I want somebody to go where they can get help. I'm not looking to make a name for myself. Listen, I know how to make a name for yourself. I've got that down. That's pretty easily identified in the church world. You do that through what's called marketing. You make a name for yourself. You don't ever have to do anything and make a name for yourself. You just put your name in certain places and keep putting it in front of people and keep saying certain things in certain ways. Listen, making a name for yourself is easy. But who wants that? Well, a lot of people do, obviously, but I don't want that. I'm not interested in that at all. And Jesus seemed to be that same way because there were times where Jesus would heal somebody and he'd tell them, don't tell anybody about this. So obviously he's not trying to draw attention to himself. So I started thinking about this. And I said, all right, Lord, you had to bring them here for a reason. I know we've been praying for years for an outpouring of the Holy Ghost, the the rain, the latter rain. The Bible says the glory of the latter-day church will be greater than the church in the early days, meaning the early days in the book of Acts. So we started praying, or we've been praying for years. And so I started saying this, thank you, Lord, for outpourings of power so that the lame and the palsied in my church are healed. Well, I I started, it sounds like a good prayer, doesn't it? I was impressed. And so I've been praying that, started praying that. And after about three weeks of praying that, Here over the last couple of weeks, the Lord has really changed my thinking on some stuff. And this last week, he capped it off. Because I'm thinking, and again, here's my background with Brother Hagin. Folks, I know about spiritual gifts. I know how spiritual gifts work. I know how spiritual gifts work better than some people that work them. I know how it works. Because I know what the Bible says. Now, there's a downside to that because you can get mechanical about stuff and miss the leading of the Holy Ghost. So I'm starting to think, oh, we need a gift of the Spirit in operation. We need either special faith or working of miracles to take place. I remember one time Brother Hagin said, just in one of his meetings in a church, maybe 50 people there, something like that, he said, everybody that's got anything wrong with you from the hips down, come down here and the Lord will heal you. Eight people came down there. Seven of the eight were instantly healed. 
Brother Hagin talked about that as the manifestation of the Holy Ghost. He's right. So I'm thinking, that's all we need. Just one time, Lord, just one time manifest the Holy Ghost to call everybody down here with anything wrong with them from the hips down. That's all we need. That'll take care of everybody. Take care of the whole bunch. One, one swipe. Been there, done that. And this week, the Lord said something to me. It wasn't in words. It wasn't this loud, booming voice. It's just something on the inside. Just him speaking, the Holy Spirit speaking to my spirit. And he said this. And again, remember, I've been praying outpourings of power. Outpourings of healing so that the lame and palsied in my church are healed. And the Lord said this to me this week. He said, I have called and anointed you to heal the lame and the palsied in your church. Now, folks, if you've been with me, I've been preaching for 26 and a half years that the anointing is on the word and Jesus is the anointed one. I've never talked about being anointed. I've never talked about being anointed. Do you know why? Because I know how anointings come. Jesus appeared to Brother Hagin and took the finger, the forefinger of his right hand and pressed it in the palm of each of Brother Hagin's hands and gave him a special anointing to the sick. So I'm thinking, again, my experience, my thinking, that's how anointings come. Jesus appears to you and he says, I've given you a special anointing to heal the sick. I've told people, Brother Hagin had this experience. Jesus appeared to him. He's never appeared to me and said that to me. I've seen him a couple of times. He has appeared a couple of times, but he never talked to me about healing anointings. Never talked to me about anything regarding healing. So I don't have a special anointing. But the word is anointed. The anointing is on the word. The anointing is on Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the healer. And we have seen marvelous healings. We've seen tumors disappear. We've seen blind eyes open. We, we've seen things that, that I, stuff happens that I don't even know about. Just found out today that somebody was healed of an acid reflux condition just a couple of months ago, sitting in healing school, just hearing the teaching of the word. And his wife was healed of a cyst on her eye. Well, I never knew that. They heard me talking about some things this morning. I guess they got convicted and said, we needed to tell you the testimonies. Well, that's fine. I don't need to know know everything. I mean, it's good to know some things as they happen so you can share the goodness of God with people. But I don't need to know everything. It's not like I'm really looking for encouragement. I made a joke about this this morning. And boy, people bless their hearts. Trying to make me feel better. Folks, that was a joke. I don't need anybody to encourage me. I get encouraged from the word just like David did when he was down. I know how that works. I don't need to be encouraged. But I do like to hear the good things that God's doing in people's lives. I do like to hear people taking hold of the word by faith and getting results. That thrills me without question because God gets the credit for that. So now I'm thinking that the humble way to handle things is just let Jesus be the anointed one. And let the anointing be on the word. And so see, I'm thinking, let there be an outpouring of healing to heal the people in my church. And God says, I've called and anointed you to heal the lame and the palsy in your church. Now, let me ask you this. Does he care more about the people in the wheelchairs and the people that are affected by palsies than he he cares about people that have been diagnosed with cancer? So he's responding to me in the manner in which I'm praying, but it includes everybody. Just like it says, is any sick among you? That has to mean all the sick. The things, the the instructions that are given are given for anybody that's sick. Right? He 
Yeah, but notice it doesn't say in the anointing shall break the yoke. The anointing shall heal the sick. It doesn't say that. It says the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Folks, I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice, first of all, it says, um, I've got a real problem here. The problem is I know what to do, but I can't let you know I'm doing it because if I let you know I'm doing it, then it won't work. But I'm not trying to trick you into anything. But it's important that you realize, well, no, it's not important that you realize. It's important that things are done a certain way. Notice again in James chapter 5, it says, If there's any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. The sick are supposed to be asking me to pray, not me asking the sick to come up for prayer. This is not talking about praying for the sick in services. This is a letter written to the church saying, If you're sick, here's what to do. Call for the elders of the church. So he's not talking about healing anointings in church or in church services. He's talking about the healing anointing that's on the pastor because he's called to be the pastor. You have no idea how hard this is for me to say because I am so ingrained to point toward Jesus instead of tell you anything about myself. But this is what it says. It says, let the sick call for the elders of the church and let the elders pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith, not the healing anointing that's on the pastor. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. Yeah, well, Pastor Mike, if it's the prayer of faith that does it, and, and I've even preached this. I've preached this for years. If it's the prayer of faith that does it, it's not about the anointing that's on the individual. Well, that's true in one sense. But he's telling us, here's how healing works in the local church. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to draw your attention to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is the story of the woman with the issue of blood. Verse 25. It says, and a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue is, King James says virtue is literally the word power, has gone out of him. Turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. I want you to notice certain things. Jesus was anointed. The anointing was not being accessed in this whole crowd of people that's touching Jesus except by one woman. In other words, one woman came to him to receive. Everybody else, as many people as can touch him, everybody else is getting zip, zero, nada, zilch, nothing. Is Jesus not anointed for them and only anointed for her? No, the anointing is available, but she's the only one that touched him in faith. So it's her faith, and Jesus says in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you whole. I take exception to that verse of Scripture because it wasn't her faith that made her whole. It was the anointing, the power of God that made her whole. Jesus felt the power go out of him, and she felt it go into her. So why did he credit her faith rather than credit the power? Because without the faith, the power won't work. So instead of Jesus saying, 
daughter, you have found the anointed one. He said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Your faith took hold of the power that was there for you all along, just like it was there for everybody else in this crowd. And notice she came to him. She came to him. Jesus didn't go to her. Jesus didn't say by a word of knowledge, wait a minute, there's a woman in this crowd. She's got an issue of blood. She's had it 12 years. You spent everything on doctors. Where are you? Come out here. She came to him. Folks, people that are ready to receive, come to get it. And that's the key. We've turned ministering to the sick in the church, in services. We've turned it into calling people out, trying to to talk them into coming to receive. If anybody wants me to lay hands on them, come and I'll lay hands on you. Based on what? Where does the Bible ever tell us to do that? No, the Bible says that the sick are supposed to call for the pastors. Doesn't it? And what we do, and, and I even had this thought. Oh, oh, Lord, Lord, I've got it. I'm called and anointed. I've got it. I can line them up. I can, I can name them. This one will go there. This one will go there. This one will go there. And I can just minister to all of them. Well, what would I do if I did that? I'd be drawing attention to them and putting pressure on them. What kind of results would I get? Minimal. Maybe none. And so here, even the power, though the power would be available. And folks, I got to tell you, it's hard for me to say, but God told me the truth. I am called and anointed to heal the sick in my church. I can't make it work in somebody else's church unless they call and invite me and, and that kind of thing. There may be certain circumstances where I could, but he didn't anoint me. He didn't call me or anoint me to heal the sick in everybody else's church. But he did call me and anoint me to heal the sick in this church. And James chapter 5 tells me. I've not only got the Lord telling me what James chapter 5 means, because up until that point in time, I never saw it. Just didn't see it. But now I see it. Now I see it. So let me tell you something. This is for everybody. Don't you dare come up to me and ask me to pray for you unless you're ready to be healed. Because you're going to get it. If you're not ready for it, and, and, and I mean that seriously, if you're not at a place where you can believe, then just keep hearing the word. Because at the point where you are ready to receive, it's a done deal. I have been looking for God to initiate something from heaven, and he's waiting for me to initiate something from from earth. I've known that. Smith Wigglesworth, you know what he used to say? He used to say, people would talk about, oh, look at how the Holy Ghost uses you. You know what Wigglesworth used to say? He said, if the Spirit doesn't move me, I move him. Seriously? He would get out and challenge things. Now, he wasn't a pastor, and so he had a traveling ministry. And so his ministry, uh, the healing anointing on him, worked in a variety of different ways that it doesn't work on me and wouldn't work on me because I'm not called to it. But he'd get out and challenge people. He'd say, the first person down here, no matter how sick you are or how infirmed you are, will get your healing. People would trample each other trying to get down to the front. He'd have to pray for the people that were injured trying to get to the front. 
And it didn't matter what it was. And people in his services, people that knew anything about his ministry, they'd be sitting on the front row. You'd have people that had terrible conditions. There would be people that would throw other folks that couldn't walk. Just to get them down there, they'd roll down to the platform. And it didn't, it never mattered. The first one down always got it whenever he said that. Instantly, miraculously. And people would remark and say, wow, look at how the Holy Ghost uses you. What manifestation of the Spirit was that? And Wigglesworth would say in his, in his Scottish brogue, he'd say, that wasn't the Holy Ghost. That was me moving God. You gotta be kidding me. Who has that kind of boldness? Who has that kind of authority? Somebody that knows what they're called to do. Folks, things are different around here. From this point forward, things are different around here. Now, don't you misunderstand me at all. We've laid hands on tons and tons of people. Seen miraculous things. I told you this morning about the, the little girl that told me in the newcomers thing. It's either last week or the week before. I don't know when it was. But she told me that her mom had come to healing school three years ago and had some tumor that the doctors wanted to give her a hysterectomy and just, I mean, it was throughout her whole body. We laid hands on her and it disappeared. And we, she went back to the doctor and the doctor said, what happened? Well, I never heard that. Never knew anything about that. Well, what happened? Well, it sure wasn't me feeling some bolt of power. Going out of me and into her, saying, oh, sister, you got it. That was a prayer of faith that saved the sick. It's been in operation all along. But, oh, boy, I've got a confidence in it now that I've never had. I've got a knowing now. Now, it still takes faith. It still takes faith. Faith on the part of the individual. But that's easy. Faith to believe that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sickness. That's simple. Piece of cake. You believe he died on the cross for your sins, didn't you? Don't you? He took stripes on his back just the same place. Same time, same work. That's easy. Faith's not a hard thing. It's an easy thing. I'm going to make a prediction. You ready? Every lame and every palsy person in our church will be healed. I'll go even further. No, please don't clap. Please don't clap. You don't clap for God. You want to praise God, lift your hands to him. And please don't clap for me. I'll go even further. It'll happen in the next year. One year from now, you watch. You watch. I'm saying that by the Holy Ghost. You watch and see. Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, folks, I went to the store today and I bought up bottles of oil. We will never run out of oil. (laughs) Unless I'm dumping whole bottles on each individual, we will never run out of oil. Let them pray over them, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall heal the sick and the Lord will raise them up. Let's just stand together. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Oh, thank you, Father. That is not your will for any person to be sick in the body of Christ. It's not your plan, your purpose for anybody to learn anything from sickness or experience adversity through sickness or any other such thing. Thank you, Father, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. We declare, Father, that we are healed. 
by the stripes of Jesus. If we were healed when Jesus took those stripes upon his back, we declare now that we are healed in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for signs and wonders and miracles to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give us boldness, Father. We pray the prayer in Acts chapter 4. Give us boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal. That signs and wonders would be done in the name of the holy child Jesus. Oh, Father, we're expecting great things. We're expecting outpourings of power, outpourings of revelation, outpourings of utterance in these last days. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.